Learn how one family is using solar power to live off-grid in a one-room tiny cabin. We're talking tiny square footage without running water or a refrigerator, just like the pioneer families of old. Today's podcast episode is tips for homesteading off-grid as I said, living without running water or refrigerator, and how to get creative using old-fashioned pioneer skills to preserve your food. Now, some of you may have no desire to live off-grid. And when we're talking about off-grid, this is not being hooked up to the power company, so there is solar electricity involved. But rather, that is something, some of you, that may be your goal, however, is to live completely off-grid and to use your own the sun to create your own solar electricity. But whichever way you may fall there, there's definite tips that you can glean from today's episode, especially when it comes to food preservation and creating your dream homestead. So today we are interviewing one of the presenters in this year's Modern Homesteading Summit 2018. And just a little heads up, you're going to want to keep your eyes open on your emails, y'all, coming Tuesday, May 29th, 2018, because you are finally going to get the link so that you can get registered and find out all the awesome details about the Modern Homesteading Summit this year. But today, one of the presenters in the Homestead Summit is on the Pioneering Today podcast with me, and I'm really excited for this episode. It's with Terry Page, and in the blog post that accompanies this episode, we have got tons of links and pictures. So if you want to see what we're talking about and or you want links to read further or to learn more about it, maybe there's some of these things that you want to incorporate in your homestead, you can get the links and the blog post at melissaknorris.com slash 143, because this is episode number 143. Or you can always just go to the website, click that podcast button, and then all of the episodes are listed in chronological order for you all the way back to number one, so you can go back and listen to them. So welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast with me, your host, Melissa K. Norris. And this is where we teach families how to grow, preserve, and cook their own food using old-fashioned skill sets and wisdom so that we can all create a natural and self-sufficient home with or without the full-on homestead. So without further ado, let's get straight to today's interview. Welcome to this edition of the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm excited for today's guest because she's doing in her homestead something that we have not done on our homestead. She's actually doing a couple of things on our homestead we have not done on our homestead, but that I'm very intrigued by and I would like to bring in one probably more than the other, if I'm being honest but I'm very much to learn more about both of these subjects. So I'm being a little bit evasive, but hey, I am excited to welcome Terry Page from homesteadinghoney.com to the podcast. So welcome, Terry. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. For those of you who don't know Terry, Terry, tell us a little bit, and this is going to just give it away, what we're going to be talking about. Tell us a little bit about your homestead 
and the size of your house and the way that it's powered. Sure. So I'm going to be a little nitpicky first. It's homestead-honey.com. So if if people want to find me, that's where they can go. So yes, we live on about 20 acres. Our land situation is a little bit complicated. We're actually part of a developing land trust community. So we actually co-own this 60-acre parcel with a few other people. We each have our own 10 acres that we care for, and then we have 30 that's owned in common. So it's a really unique setup. We live in a 350-square-foot house, a little tiny house, and we live completely off the grid. We have solar electricity. We actually do have high-speed internet because of the wonders of wireless internet and satellites and all those good things. But we have some rustic elements as well. Like we don't have an indoor bathroom. So we have a composting toilet and we actually don't even have running water in the house. So it's a dry cabin, if you will. But this is where we live full time. My husband, myself, and our two children. How long have you guys been in your location in the dry cabin? We moved here in 2012 and we moved onto the land that next summer. So I think it was June 1st, 2013, we began camping and we built this entire homestead from scratch. So we started with in the tent and a pop-up tent trailer for a little while, then built the house over the next year, year and a half. So we've been in the house since October 2013. (laughs) So it's it's been five years. And it's one of those things where I know our initial plan was to build this small house as a starter and then to add on and Mm -hmm. to actually build a completely separate dwelling. And then because we had been homesteading for so many years before we moved here to Missouri, we were actually more impatient to get a cow and to get more fruit trees planted and to get a brick bread oven. We were more impatient for those things that we had had before and running water and indoor plumbing wasn't the priority, (laughs) which just sounds crazy when I say that, but it just wasn't. So it's kind of how we've ended up here five years later, still in this tiny house. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating. One It wasn't that tiny, but when I was growing up and actually the first years that I was married, we lived in a 1974 single wide trailer. And I want to say it was barely 900 square feet, which I realize is a lot bigger than your house if we're talking square footage, but in relative to a lot of homes, that's considered fairly small. Mm -hmm. And we really only actually didn't even use a couple of the rooms in it. But anyways, so Having that small of a house, there's great things about it. Like it's so easy to heat when it's small. You can heat it and you can cool it down really well. And so that's one great thing. There's not as much cleaning space. Of course, your storage is different, but it does really force you down to the bare essentials. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be a good thing. But now with the composting toilet, so do you have that outside like an outhouse, but then inside of it, instead of just a seat with a hole in the ground, it's an actual composting toilet? So what we actually have is a really simple bucket system. We literally poop in a bucket and we have a seat on it. So it's a little glamorous. It's in a lovely little outhouse that my husband built, super cute. And then we will empty the bucket into what's called a humanure pile. So it's kind of like a composting pile, but specifically for the human waste. And then 
you let that compost for a really long period of time. We actually haven't used ours yet, but you could eventually use that on, you know, fruit trees or shrubs or other ornamentals. So that's our setup. We just go out there and do our business. And it's actually really pleasant. You know, I mean, there's only been one or two times where it's been so bitterly cold that I'm just like, no, no, I, I, I will not go outside. <laughs> <laughs> But otherwise, it's actually really nice to force yourself to get up and away from the desk or whatever you're doing and go outside. And it's so beautiful where we live. So I kind of enjoy that. Yeah, my dad, that place he grew up with. And so we would go over and visit. My dad still has it. It's still in the family. But theirs was an outhouse. But it was just the toilet seat and a hole in the ground. And then back when there was a whole family using it, when he was growing up, they would just fill that hole back in and then kind of move it around the property as needed. And so it was all just buried in the ground instead of a composting system like you have guys have going on. But you don't hear of it very often, at least I should say in modern society or in third world countries as much as it used to be commonplace Mm -hmm. further back. And so I'm actually, you know, I have used the outhouse (laughs) number of times. And yeah, it's more the cold weather. And I have to say, here because the outhouse it's still standing in is still usable but it doesn't get used very often and so the one thing I was always a little apprehensive about was spiders because I do not like spiders and so that was actually worse for me than the weather was looking for spiders (laughs) yeah and you know I have been in a lot of outhouses just I backpack a lot and so been out in the wilderness a lot with different types of outhouse situations And personally, I think the more exposure to air you can get going, the better because, you know, like ours is very simply constructed, has a roof, it has some slatted walls so that you can't see the person (laughs) using the bathroom. But there's not darkness and there's not those like dark corners for the spiders to hang out because I think I would feel the same way that you do. (laughs) Well, that's good. That is a really, that's a good point. And that's kind of, this one is, it is pretty dark inside and it's withstood actually a lot of years because it was there before I was born and it's the same outhouse. So it was constructed pretty well, but yeah, an airflow, especially in the summer (laughs) is important. Yeah. But then like, you're right. The light in that too helps keep those spiders out. So those are good points. So you guys are So how do you get your water then? Do you have an indoor hand pump or like a gravity fed system or how are you guys getting your water? Well, we have rainwater catchment all around the property. It comes off of, you know, almost all the roofs that we have, including our chicken coop. Like that's how we water the chickens is the water. We collect the water from their own coop and then give it to them. So basically we're using the water inside for, you know, hand washing, light body washing, if, if we need to, cooking, drinking. So, so we just bring it inside with a bucket. It's, it's, you know, it's like one of those things, my husband often is the one that takes care of the water and he doesn't feel the need to work out with weights because he's hauling <laughs> five gallon buckets of water around <laughs> and that's 40 pounds right there. So yeah, it's, you know, it's a little inconvenient, but it's not horrible. And then bathing wise, I teach yoga at a yoga studio in town. So like, I'll use the shower there and, or, you know, we'll go to the YMCA or we'll heat up water outside and we'll take a outdoor shower, things like that. So, so we just kind of work with it creatively and it works for our family. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that's the beautiful thing about homesteading. And what I really, you know, the more people I talk to who are doing homestead is no one homestead is the same. You know, we all, we all are working with what works for our family at the time you're in right now, the location that you're in right now. But I think the key thing that I've really is, is people are, is that you're doing it. You know, you're just diving in and you're doing it and homesteads change. It may be a different actually location, but it may, it may be the way you homestead, you know, when you change things. So my, and then you guys also use solar to power everything in your home, right? So there's no electricity either. Right. So we're not attached to the grid at all. Yes, we're completely solar powered and we have a battery bank. So we're making our own electricity and then storing it on site. And that actually works great. I mean, we have some limitations just because the size of our system right now only allows us to use a certain amount of electricity, but that would be really easy to expand if we wanted to. It would just be a matter of more batteries and a few more panels So for all practical purposes, when you walk into our house, it functions just like a regular house where you turn on light switches and you have outlets. And so you would never know that our house was necessarily off the grid when you're in it. Gotcha. Now, I am curious because you are, so when you are using solar power, which I should say, I meant you're not hooked up to an electric power company, you know, using a battery bank. Mm -hmm. So it's, there is electricity, but yeah, it's different than your regular house that's just hooked up to power lines, that type of thing. Right. And you don't have running water. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious, do you have a dishwasher? Do you have a regular washing machine? Like what is that like appliance wise? What does that look like for you guys? Yeah, it looks really minimal. The dishwasher is me. And (laughs) all right, I I mean, I do the dishes. We bring our laundry into town once a week when we go into town anyways. And we do a giant load of wash and then we take it home and we line dry it. So that's pretty easy. The only real appliance, you know, we have a freezer. We have a chest freezer And that's for all the fruit and vegetables and meat that we raise or buy. So we've got our food storage with our freezer. And then what we do for our refrigeration is we have a large cooler and we just switch out ice jugs from the freezer. Mm -hmm. It works really well. You know, the food stays cold because the freezer is there. Then, you know, we don't really need a traditional refrigerator. And otherwise, you know, we have computer, we have lights, and then small things like blenders, food processors. The things that we can't use are things that create a lot of heat or a lot of cool. So in the summer when we have full sunlight, we'll put on a fan because we have enough electricity being generated that we can use the fan. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't run an air conditioner with our current setup we can use a toaster oven, but something that requires consistent heat over time, like a food dehydrator mm-hmm. or heat mats for starting seeds, those things we we can't use with the system that we have right now. Okay. Really interesting. And we don't have air conditioning here where we live either in our homestead. And we do have, because we live in a manufactured home. Mm-hmm. And so it came with a forced air heating system, but we don't use it. We don't even have the thermostat. We just leave it turned off. It doesn't even come on. We just use wood heat to heat it. So yeah, so very interesting. I'm very intrigued by that. And I think it's really cool. So do you feel that the, like, what was it, do you know the initial cost setup to get 
you know, the solar panels and the batteries and to kind of get everything up and going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was roughly $5,000 for our system. And, you know, in different places, electricity is, of course, different prices. I, I haven't priced it out completely, but I would imagine that we were living in town for about six months when we first moved here. And all of our utilities together were about $250 a month. Most of that was propane and the electricity. So, you know, roughly like an average person who wanted to buy a system our size, you know, they'd maybe pay that off in a few years of savings. And we also use wood heat. So really the only thing we're using the electricity for is, is like the, the freezer and the lights and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I'm always curious when you've put it in and been with it for a while, you know, how long it takes to pay off. And I realize that there's other benefits to being independent like that with your own power source. Of course, you know, the power goes out, your power doesn't go out, you know, if the electricity right. goes out or mm -hmm. not, which is really great. And you are, you know, self-sufficient. You're not paying into someone else and they can raise the rates whenever they want and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But then I also like to look at it on the flip side and be like, okay, well, with my current power costs, how long would it take me to actually recoup these savings back? I think too, different parts of the country and different setups, depending upon what your goals are on whether or not it's a good fit for you and your, to outfit your house that way. Yes, yes. So when we moved here, a lot of the electricity is generated by burning coal and that just didn't feel good to us. I mean, there's pros and cons to all of the different electrical systems, you know, hydro right. and, and all of it, wind, but it just when we were weighing everything, we could have actually connected to the grid here. I mean, there is power and water right down, right down the road, but mm -hmm. it would have cost money to do that too. So this just felt like the best overall investment and, and something that we felt good about. You know, it, it connected what we wanted to do to our values. And it just always makes us feel like we've made a good choice for our family. For somebody who was considering moving to using solar versus, you know, being on the regular grid, electric power company grid, what would be kind of the things that you would tell someone to, that they need to know or to consider? Like, you know, I wish I had known this before we first started or before we first got in there. Do you have anything like that? I think that most of what we have going on here, it often doesn't feel like we are off the grid. Like I said, you know, when you walk into our house, it just, you're just flipping light switches just like you would in a normal place. But we do have to be mindful of our usage. And we're kind of always checking our wall where we have all of the, you know, the charge control, the, the inverter, the batteries. And we're just kind of always monitoring like, oh, where are we at right now with our batteries? And there are days that we get down to 30% and we don't want in fact, our system actually shuts itself off at about 30% battery because mm -hmm. you don't want to drain your batteries like that. It's, it's not good for the life of the batteries. There are days, especially in the winter, December, January time when the days are really short and they're kind of gray and overcast. It can sometimes be challenging in the heat of summer too because our freezer is working really hard to stay cold and it's so hot outside that it's just draining a lot of electricity. So, you know, just being mindful that if you do decide to go off the grid, especially if you decide to work with batteries instead of being grid tied, you are going to have to just pay attention to your consumption. And 
for us, that's been great. You know, I, I love that. <laughs> I love paying attention to my consumption, but it's just not going to be right for other people. And that said, you know, I know people who are grid tied and they have their solar panels set up and they oftentimes will make more electricity than they actually use, but they're in a relationship with the power company where they can feed that electricity back to the power company. And then you always know that when you need it, you have it. And when you have extra, you're just giving it back to the system. I've been familiar with that too, which I think is, is a cool thing as well. So for the life of the battery, you have me curious, what is the lifespan of a typical battery before you're having to replace the batteries? We've been told is roughly around 10 years. You know, I would hope that it would be a little bit longer because we're almost about halfway into that. And again, things like making sure that you're not draining your batteries and doing the monthly check with, well, this is, this is my husband's domain, but <laughs> you, know, you have to go in and check the levels of liquids and and stuff like that. There's, there's right. a checklist. And we worked through Backwoods Solar, which is a great company based in Idaho. They kind of specialize in this kind of thing, like off the grid systems. So whenever we have questions, customer service kind of comes with buying their oh, product. So it's, it's been really great. If we ever have questions or if we're concerned about the system, we can just reach out to them. Yeah. So roughly 10, 10 years. And I actually do know people who have lived off the grid with batteries. And then when it came time for them to replace the batteries, they actually decided it wasn't going to be the right financial investment. And so they, you know, go, went ahead and did the grid tie at that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, lots of directions you can go with, with the solar. Fascinating, which really segues beautifully into the next part that I wanted to talk to you about. And that is one, you have, limited amount of storage space because you guys are in such a small dwelling and Mm. you don't have a refrigerator. So I'm going to be assuming because you do have a garden and raise quite a bit of your own food that having some type of food preservation method is really important for you guys because the refrigerator is not really an option. And you said you can't really run a regular electric dehydrator. And I know that you do some canning, but it's not actually your preferred method. So (laughs) what you love to do as your, one of your main forms, your big ways of food preservation. I know. I feel like every time I say that I don't like to can, it's like, gasp. You know, it's just, it's just not my thing. I mean, I'll do it, but you can hear kind of the resentment in my voice. It's like, oh, okay, I have to can, but it's hot, generally speaking, when you're canning and I just don't like standing over a pot of boiling water in the summer. Well, here's, here's my favorite. My absolute favorite is to not do any food preservation at all, just to keep the garden going year round. So that would be my number one choice. And that's not going to work for all climates. When we were in Oregon, we lived in the Willamette Valley and we had a a high tunnel greenhouse Mm -hmm. and it was amazing. We could grow food year round in there. So we had, you know, we had kale growing most of the year. We had carrots, we had all sorts of stuff growing. So that was the greatest. And then we would can things like condiments, salsas, chutneys, sauces, some jams and jellies, things like that. Here, what we've done is we ended up building a root cellar. And a root cellar is, you know, in case people aren't too familiar with it, it's basically a a underground storage unit that's often made out of like brick or cement or, I mean, sometimes wood. 
And you cover it with earth or you dig it into the ground so that the temperature of the earth moderates the interior temperature of the root cellar. And so it's a very high humidity, low temperature environment, which is basically like an old fashioned refrigerator. So, you know, the closest thing that most people have is a basement. And a lot of people can just do root cellaring in their basement as long as they're mindful of pests and, you know, you don't want any animals getting in there. So we did this a few years ago. We built this root cellar from scratch. My husband is an amazing builder, so I'm very lucky. It's been amazing. It was probably the best thing we added to our homestead since we've moved here. Full disclosure, and any of my listeners were note, I, I love canning. I typically don't do a lot of water bath canning except for pickles in the summertime and I actually set up and do outdoor canning with my water bath canning. I do pressure can. I do it at night and then I can open all the windows and the house pretty much cools off by morning. And I prefer to pressure can actually over water bath canning. So if it's anything, applesauce, tomato sauce, tomatoes, all those, even though you technically can water bath them, I'm on pressure can them because it's way <laughs> better. It doesn't keep my house up as much. But, and then like most of my fruits, I will freeze if I'm going to be doing syrup, jam, jelly, pie filling. I will freeze them, fruit butters, and then I wait until the fall when it's cooler and I don't have so much harvest coming on. And then I go ahead and process those and do all of the canning. So I am a fan of canning, but there's many different methods of food preservation. The key thing is to pick what works for you and what you know, you're able to do. And we do use some root cellar techniques here, but I was excited to talk to you about it because we actually don't have a garage or a basement. So I am limited to just the volume of things that I can root cellar and also the life of them that they're going to stay good because they don't have a true root cellar situation. One of the things that I think is really key, if you need to know what the majority of the method of preservation that you're going to be using on crops when you put them in. And mm-hmm. so do you plant differently knowing that you're going to be using more of a root cellar type preservation system, does that influence the crops that you plant or not really? Yeah, definitely. In fact, that's something that really shifted when I moved here because not only are we limited on space in our house and we live in this off-grid situation, but we also moved from the Willamette Valley of Oregon, which is local seasonal food hub, to Northeast Missouri, rural it's almost impossible to find local, organic, fresh food in the middle of winter. So for me, that was a real priority. I just wanted to make sure that I could have the best quality food year round. So instead of spending as much time on my summer garden, I know that in the summer I can go to the farmer's market here. Once summer ends, then that's done. So I definitely have concentrated much more on growing what I call my root cellar garden and thinking about things like beets and carrots and parsnips, turnips, potatoes, things that store really well in the root cellar. That's fabulous. And I think too, it's really interesting because like you say, depending upon what your climate is like and what your growing season is like, because you've went from one area to a very different area. So it really does influence and it's going to change the way that you do things depending upon where you live. That's really important for people to know because I know, you know, I you share a lot of things that we're doing here. And there's some things 
that you're pretty much going to be able to take and adapt to a degree, no matter where you live. But I think it's really important to recognize to grow and garden for where you're at. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you're not constantly trying to fight or to baby things or to baby crops or, or don't cause yourself so much work. That's really important. Yes, absolutely. My husband and I wrote an ebook that basically gives you the how-to of how to build the same root cellar that we built. I hear from people a lot regarding root cellaring and building root cellars. You know, there's people who live in spots where if they built a concrete structure underground, they would have a swimming pool, not a root cellar. So it really does depend a lot on, you know, where you are, what your, what your soil type is like and your climate, and you just have to kind of pick and choose what works. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your guys's homestead situation and your tips and what it's like, you know, things to expect and how you guys operate. I know that the listeners are going to find lots of inspiration there. And of course, as always, guys, in the blog post that accompanies this podcast, we will have lots of links and additional resources for you to check things out. And Terry's presentation in the Modern Homesteading Summit is all about root cellars and planting crops and that type of thing. So you're definitely going to want to check that out because I know that you're going to have a lot more questions and be really intrigued. And I love because root cellaring is such an old-fashioned pioneer way kind of like your old-fashioned refrigerator, but mm-hmm. without having this box that you got to buy in electricity. It's just a great shelf-stable way to keep all of your produce without nearly the amount of work that any other preservation method takes. Yes, that is key when you are a busy homesteader. Yes, amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much for coming on, Terry. I really enjoyed our time together. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now we're moving into our verse of the week section, which is something that we have on almost every single episode. And many of you have emailed in to me and let me know that you really appreciate this part of the podcast, which makes me very happy. And I've also gotten some comments recently that other people aren't so happy about it. And I think it's important whenever we get feedback to look at the feedback, see if we agree with it, if there's any truth to it, and if there's anything from that feedback that we think that we need to change. And I can honestly say that I do not think that I need to change this part of the show, and I won't be changing this part of the show. So for those of you who enjoy the verse of the week, thank you. And this week's verse of the week is in Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 45. This is the Amplified Translation. Then he thoroughly opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. It is a short and sweet little verse. But I think it's a really important verse, and it's been one that I have been praying since my pastor preached on this portion of scripture this past Sunday. Because I think a lot of times we can read a portion of scripture, or at least myself, because honestly, I read through the entire Bible when I was a teenager. It was just something that I wanted to do. I want, if it was going to be my faith and my truth, then I felt that I, for myself, needed to read the entire Bible and not just take it up on others' words or, you know, Sunday school or in church. I needed to actually have read the Bible in its entirety myself. 
And I've since read it a couple of times all the way through as an adult. And what I find so amazing about that, and one of the things that's, that is so amazing, and we use that word a lot, I even tend to use that word more than I probably should, but in truth, when it comes to Jesus and the Bible being the living word of God, is it doesn't matter. There can be verses that I have really probably read and or heard 20 or 30 times. And yet, when I read them, there is so often where God will show me, he will open up my minds to show me a newer meaning or a different way to look at it, to apply it for my life that helps me in that situation right then and there. So that's my continual prayer for myself. And hopefully the prayer for you is that the Lord will open up our minds so that we fully understand the scriptures the way that he intended and so that we can really understand the depth and the beauty of the gift and the freedom that Jesus gave us when he died on the cross for our sins. So thank you so much for joining me on this edition of the Pioneering Today podcast. And I can't wait to be back with you here next week. Bye for now.